Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Multiple congressional hearings and dozens of letters to agencies later, Republicans on the House Oversight and Accountability Committee are still not happy with the details they've got on federal telework. Now they're turning to a new source of information to try to learn more. Joining me with the latest, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Drew, tell us, who are they calling on and what exactly now are they asking for? So now they are turning to the Office of Management and Budget to get a little bit more information from uh, agencies that are working on telework or return to office plans. That, of course, Tom, makes sense. OMB is, of course, the ones who put out the memo in 2023 that called on agencies to return employees to the office more often and started that whole process. OMB has what are called work environment plans. This is something that agencies require to send them as part of that return to office memo that we saw last April. And it outlines individual telework and return to office uh, policies for agencies. So now you have members of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee wanting to get copies of those reports. They've, of course, been looking for more detailed information on returning to the office for many, many months now. Right. That was the memo that talked about the healthy workplace and healthy environment. It was like 19 pages of dense prose that very few people could understand. Yeah, the idea there was, you know, they called it organizational health. So they're looking at, you know, I call it return to office memo because that's what most people might know it as. But it's more generally this idea of, you know, having a workplace that makes the most sense for productivity (laughs) is how OMB puts it. Now, these Republicans on the Oversight and Accountability Committee in the House, why did they send this request to OMB? Because they couldn't get what they wanted out of OPM? So pretty much they've been going around for many, many months now looking for more data on telework. I think their main concern, what they say, is that they think telework is leading to poor performance from federal employees. They've gotten a lot of pushback from saying that sort of thing, but they're basically looking for data to back up whether or not telework is working for employees. And they believe that what they have available, either from OPM from individual agencies or what they've heard in multiple congressional hearings that they've held. They feel like they still haven't gotten enough information and they're looking for more. You know, I I believe they it was last May that they requested 25 agencies to give them specific numbers of teleworking employees. And they said that in the responses that they got from agencies at that time, there were 11 of them, so close to half that didn't weren't able to give those uh, numbers of teleworking employees for one reason or another. And besides data on for agencies that reveal it, how many people work and telework how much time, what other data is actually available? Is there data, for example, that ties outcomes or productivity to telework? So this is the part that is really interesting. And I think the answer is really that it just depends on the agency. Every agency is a little bit different in the way that it collects telework data and the way that it measures performance or productivity, which makes sense. You know, agencies have different missions or different ways to measure whether or not their employees are doing well. But overall, the Office of Personnel Management or OPM issues an annual telework report to Congress, and that's where Congress gets its main source of information on the percentage of employees who telework, how often they telework. And OPM, in their most recent report, talked a lot about the benefits of telework. So that is basically the main source. But even within that report, OPM has said that 
agencies don't always have all of that data available, and sometimes there are gaps in the data. So it's not a perfect report, and that might be part of the reason that you have Republicans pushing a little bit harder there. There's also information in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey or FEBS on telework, but even those answers are a little bit different. So there's not really a clear a clear number, which is what Republicans are asking for. Right. I mean, a lot of agencies depend on measures of casework, for example. How many cases did we adjudicate? Did our backlog go up or down? How many loans did we process? How many returns did we process? I mean, those are fairly objective measures. Last year we did 10,000. This year we did 12,000. And by the way, 40% more teleworking hours. I'm making up these numbers. Is there a tie-in? I don't think anyone, even academically, can can say one way or the other. I, I think that's fair. I think it's really hard to say one way or the other. But, you know, from federal employees themselves, they a lot of them do say that they feel more productive working from home and they are able to contribute to the mission just the same as they are in the office. So I think that's why you do get a lot of pushback from employees, from unions on these return to office mandates from agencies but we're still seeing those continue. So there is a little bit of back and forth, a little bit of tension there that doesn't seem to be going away. Yeah, some of the people who went into complete telework, I heard from one reader at a large agency after reading a column I did, said that she was skeptical of atomizing everyone through telework, and now she's a total convert and thinks that this agency's return to work schedule will actually undo some great gains they've made in her particular unit. So I think, yeah, a lot of it is very situationally oriented as to what the real outcome is. And there's other pressure sources on federal telework and returning to the office. What are some of those? I think the the main one that we're seeing other than House Republicans is the White House itself. So you have the chief of staff, Jeff Zients. He's made multiple calls on agency heads and cabinet officials to say, you know, essentially, why aren't you returning to the office fast enough and really kind of making a stronger push to get employees back into the office. OMB's general guideline is they want about a 50% in-person presence from federal employees across all agencies. So I, I guess some are a little bit more ahead than others in that regard. I think the Department of Veterans Affairs and Homeland Security are ones where science has said they're kind of more positive examples, but there's others where we haven't really seen their full plans develop. So I think you're getting a little bit a little bit stronger of a push from the White House as well as in Congress. Yeah, and it really depends on an agency like Veterans Affairs, what function, what division. I mean, Veterans Benefits Administration, people that do casework and processing of claims and, and applications, well, they don't need to be in the office. Whereas, you know, if you're a thoracic surgeon, well, yeah, you probably have to do that in person. So, I mean, again, it gets back to the situation. I was on the phone for an hour with an airline representative the other day on a complicated trip I'm trying to take, and all of a sudden I could hear her dog barking. I said, you're teleworking. She says, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. She was in one coast, the airline's based 2,000 miles away, and, you know, you couldn't tell the difference. That's what networks are all about and IT is all about. All right. So this letter is there from these Republicans. Did they demand deadlines and compliance from from the Office of Management and Budget, the White House, effectively? They're, the deadline that they gave is actually today, February 14th, to respond to that request. So we'll see if OMB gets back to them with more information. OMB didn't sit, tell me anything about plans to respond to the letter. So it's just going to be a little bit of a waiting game there. But oversight staff members said, you know, they also didn't say whether or not they 
are planning to have another hearing on telework or what else they would do if they didn't get or if I guess if they weren't satisfied with OMB's response. So we're right on that deadline. We'll see what happens. All right. Well, if Jeff Science has any sense of humor, he'll send it in a Valentine's card up there to Capitol Hill. But I don't think he does. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.